0: The old pilot's plane tales You couldn't give these away either Having recently talked about a couple of embarrassingly awful US World War II aircraft it wouldn't be fair if I didn't mention some from my side of the Atlantic that were knocked together in the jolly old British Isles Sadly, there are way too many to cover, so I'll just take a deep breath and mention a few. A while ago, I visited an Air Force friend who had at one time sat behind me in an F-4 Phantom. Andy went on to many greater achievements than I did, but after retirement he moved down to a lovely old house in a village not far from me. Whilst we were catching up on old times in his lovely garden, I noticed a quirky old summer house and, taking a closer look, my eyes fell on the manufacturer's plate attached to the cast-iron frame. Bolton and Poole of Norwich Excuse me if I digress for a moment, but this fine old company marks its origins to an ironmonger's shop founded in 1797. A partner in the shop was one William Staples Bolton, who along with Joseph Paul would eventually have their names on the letterhead. The company turned its hands to many things over the years, including building summer houses that rotated on a track so that you could turn your pretty garden cabin around to catch the sun and make the most of an English summer. And Andy had a wonderful antique one in his garden. Being a bit of an av geek, I couldn't help but wonder if there was any connection. No, surely not. Mind you, from a distance... The little summer house did look a bit like a gun turret. As soon as I got home I did some digging around, and behold, Bolton and Paul Limited were indeed the culprits, and when I was a great deal smaller I had built a model of something they had made. It hung from the ceiling of my room to form part of a World War II model dogfight diorama. Even back then I knew the reputation of the aircraft that I'd made as I had it going down in a mass of cotton wool flames and peppered full of holes made by a sleek BF-109 that was flashing past it. Actually, I'd used a hot pin to burn the bullet holes through the plastic, but don't tell the 109 pilot that. The model, of course, was that of the Bolton-Paul Defiant. During the First World War, Bolton and Paul began building aircraft under contract, starting with the Fe2B and then moving to the Sopworth Camel, of which they turned out 550. Between the wars, they made their mark with the introduction of powered turrets for bombers, and from a new factory in Wolverhampton, they began to design fighters. The concept of a fighter armed solely with a single turret wasn't entirely the fault of the manufacturer and their designers, but the Air Ministry, which had issued a raft of aircraft specifications for manufacturers to follow, stemming from the operational requirements envisioned at the time. Someone obviously thought it would be a marvellous idea for a fighter to sport a turret so that it could fly beneath enemy bombers and shoot upwards into the belly of the cooperative target, who would, of course, fail to shoot back. The fact that this made the fighter completely vulnerable to a similar attack seemed to have escaped those involved. Air Ministry Specification F9-35 called for a two-seat, four-gun turret fighter to replace the previous type, the Hawker Demon biplane. Three manufacturers stepped forward, Hawker with the Hotspur, Bristol with the Type 147, and Bolton Paul's Defiant. The company's involvement with previous turret design gave it the edge with the hydraulic, electric-powered gun platform. It closely resembled a long Hawker Hurricane, in looks, but was about 1,500 pounds at 680 kilos heavier, although only 800 pounds was due to the turret. Despite being powered by a Rolls-Royce Merlin 3, it could barely reach 300 miles an hour, and took eight and a half minutes to climb to 15,000 feet. This was yet to be discovered, as the Ministry ordered a production run of 87 aircraft off the drawing board, and in all 713 were built. Due to production delays, at the start of the war only three airframes had reached the RAF, and it wasn't until 1940 that enough were available to mount patrols. The first squadron to become operational was 264, and it tested its performance against the Spitfire. It was discovered that although the Defiant could defend itself by continually circling, it wasn't in a position to act offensively against other fighters. It became clear that Bolton Paul had built an aircraft only capable of taking on less maneuverable machines, such as bombers. This was emphasised in the first operational sorties when six Defiants and six Spitfires took on Ju-87 Stuka dive bombers attacking shipping in the Channel. Four of the German dive bombers were shot down and then, despite the presence of the Spitfires, the formation were attacked by a flight of Messerschmitt Bf 109s. Five of the six Defiants went spinning earthward. Other than the weak armament, the only guns were in the turret, and they had four Browning 303 machine guns. As well as its less than stellar performance, the aircraft had other reasons to be unpopular amongst the crews who flew it, particularly the gunners. The turret was too small to allow the air gunners to wear a conventional chest or seat mounted parachute. This resulted in the development of the Rhino Suit a special all-in-one garment that wrapped around the back and contained a parachute, a dinghy, and formed the gunner's outer clothing. As Gus Platts, an air gunner who helped develop the parachute, described it, "'The rhino suit we had to wear on Defiance was a bear, but I couldn't come up with an alternative, even though it killed dozens of us.' The Defiant was initially quite successful against enemy aircraft. On the 28th of May, shortly after takeoff, 10 Defiants were attacked by about 30 Bf 109s. Forming a circle, they claimed six German fighters for the loss of three Defiants. However, the losses mounted. On the 31st of May, seven Defiants were lost in one day. During the evacuation of Dunkirk, 264 Squadron claimed 48 kills in eight days, although the cost was high, with 14 Defiants lost. In reality, German losses were actually no more than 12 or 15 enemy aircraft. The turret's wide angle of fire meant that several Defiants could engage the same target at one time, leading to multiple claims. Germans' bouncing defiance sometimes mistook them for hurricanes and on settling in behind got quite a shock when the gunner opened fire, but they soon learned the aircraft's vulnerabilities. Once the Luftwaffe pilots got their measure, the glory days of the defiant were quickly over. The Me 109 showed its superiority In speed, even the Bf110 could outperform the Defiant, which was now doomed to failure. They were to become death traps for their crews, incapable of dogfighting and far too slow to get away from the incoming enemy. Pilots later complained that it was also a difficult task to bail out of stricken aircraft and many had to go down with their machines. On the 26th of August 1940... 264 Squadron lost five aircraft with nine crew killed. By the end of August, over half of the delivered airframes had been shot down, a loss rate that the RAF considered unacceptable. Moved to other duties, the Defiant became quite a successful night fighter, particularly when fitted with an air intercept radar. Some aircraft became gunnery trainers, and other were employed in the electronic countermeasures role, and for a while it served, rather unsuccessfully, as an air-sea rescue aircraft. But it finally found a place in the world as a target tug. During the pre-war period, the Fairy Battle was considered to hold great promise as a replacement for the Hawker Hart and Hind biplanes that were in service with the RAF. Indeed, it was a considerable improvement over its predecessors. To be fair, the RAF's requirements for this light bomber were set pretty low when they asked for a monoplane capable of carrying 1,000 pounds of bombs, that's 450 kilograms, for 1,000 miles at 200 miles an hour. Apparently, in the early 30s, many in Britain saw France as a potential enemy, and they thought there was a need for an aircraft capable of attacking Paris. It was also seen as an aircraft that might be permitted following the 1932 Geneva Disarmament Conference. Ferry were keen to have a go and built a prototype powered by the Merlin Mark I, which actually reached a maximum speed of 257 miles an hour, doing better than any other contemporary day bomber. However, even prior to the first flight, members of the air staff had concluded that the specifications laid out were insufficient to enable its use in a prospective conflict with a re-emergent Germany. Despite this, an order for 155 was placed, and the aircraft was named the Battle. By the end of 1937, a number of squadrons had been re-equipped, and the order for more aircraft reached 2,419. The aircraft had a clean design and followed the trend for low-wing monoplanes of the time, having an oval fuselage and a light-alloy stressed-skin monocoque structure. It had a long, continuously glazed cockpit that housed a crew of three, the pilot, a gunner and an observer, who acted as a bomb aimer by lying down beneath the pilot's seat and peering out through a sliding panel in the floor of the fuselage using his Mark VII course-setting bomb sight. The standard bomb load were four 250-pound bombs carried internally in the wings, but two more could be racked under the wings. The pilot had the use of a single forward-firing 303 Browning in the right wing, Whilst the gunner used a rear firing 303 Vickers machine gun, which he fired from a position at the back of the cockpit. The Vickers were the guns used by the long range desert group, who operated behind the lines in North Africa, but at least their jeeps had two of them. For a single engine aircraft, it was large and heavy. Its span was nearly 54 feet. And empty, it still weighed over 6,600 pounds, around three metric tons. At maximum takeoff weight, that rose to nearly 10,800 pounds, close to five tons. By the time that the battle was entering service in 1937, it had already been rendered obsolete by the rapid advances in aircraft technology. For defence, its armament proved to be woefully inadequate, and it lacked other common defensive features of the era, such as an armoured cockpit and self sealing fuel tanks. By May 1939, a total of 17 RAF squadrons had been equipped with the battle, and it remained a frontline aircraft primarily due to a lack of suitable replacement. During the Phony War, ten battle squadrons deployed to airfields in France as part of an advanced strike force, and on the twentieth of september nineteen thirty-nine the battle scored its first aerial victory of the Second World War for the RAF when air gunner Sergeant Lechard bought down a BF one oh nine. Nevertheless, Being 100 miles an hour slower than the German fighters, the battle was hopelessly outclassed and the losses mounted. On the 10th of May, 3 out of 8 and then 10 out of 24 were lost in a single day with the remaining aircraft suffering damage. The next day the Belgian Air Force lost first nine and then a further six battles, and in another sortie, the same day, the RAF lost all but one from a formation of eight aircraft. A few days later, in an all-out attack to prevent German advances, a force of 63 battles struck bridges. Thirty-five aircraft failed to return. Thankfully, the battle was taken out of frontline service but it limped on in other air forces and as trainers, target tugs, engine test beds and the like. For the low-level attack role, the RAF pressed the Mosquito, the Bowfighter, the Hurricane, the Typhoon and the P-47 Thunderbolt into service as a replacement. Back in 1936, the Royal Navy Fleet Air Arm had taken delivery of its new torpedo bomber, the Fairy Swordfish biplane. It was a medium-sized open cockpit biplane which had a metal airframe covered in fabric and utilised folding wings to save space aboard a carrier. It was quite fondly named the string bag, not because of all the bracing wires common to biplanes or the ease in which the slow machine could be shot up, leaving it full of holes, but the name came from the seemingly endless variety of stores, weapons and equipment that it could carry, similar in nature to that of the ubiquitous housewives' shopping bag common at the time. The swordfish was slow and vulnerable, and by the start of the war it was already considered obsolete. Enter the Fairy Albacore, or Apple Corps, as it was more fondly known, which was supposed to fulfil ministry specifications S-41-36 for an improved torpedo bomber. The albacore was designed to replace the older swordfish, and the first prototype flew in late 1938. It was assessed by the test pilots at Boscombe Down, where the Bristol Taurus two-engined versions showed a stunningly unimpressive maximum speed of 160 miles an hour when carrying four underwing depth charges. Perhaps it would be faster after the depth charges were dropped and indeed it was, it could reach 172 miles an hour. They fitted an improved Taurus 12, which showed little improvement, and in service the albacore proved less popular than the swordfish it was designed to replace, particularly since it was far less manoeuvrable, with the controls being too heavy to allow good evasive action to be flown after dropping ordnance. Despite the fact that the albacore was clearly more modern in appearance than the swordfish, it didn't prove to be that much of an advance. The enclosed cockpit didn't give much benefit, since the front of the cockpit was like a greenhouse, even in mildly sunny weather, whilst the rear of the cockpit remained drafty and chilly. The Albacore went into service with the fleet air arm early in 1940, but was progressively replaced by the Barracuda from 1943 onwards. The string bag, however, the hero of the Battle of Taranto, when 12 aircraft from HMS Illustrious decimated the pride of the Italian Navy in the harbour of Taranto, sinking half of its capital ships in one night, went on to serve until May 1945, when the last squadron, 836 Naval Air Squadron, was finally disbanded. If you enjoyed this story, it would be marvellous if you could mention it perhaps on social media, And leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find us at AirlinePilotGuy.com